Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick, with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss the fundamental principles of game theory. We correctly guess the answers to SAT questions without ever knowing what the questions are. We look at how to use game theory in practical ways, and we go deep on how a college professor and his student started a beverage company, sold a billion bottles of tea, and competed against Coke, Nestle, and other major players to become incredibly successful with our guest, Barry Nailbuff. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 850,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious about how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. In our previous episode, we discussed why dieting actually predicts weight gain over the long run, how you can build a health style of habits that accumulate small advantages and create a healthy lifestyle over time how habit loops are formed, and how you can leverage neuroscience to create habits that stick, 
The concept of mindful eating and how it can transform your relationship to the meals that you eat and more with our guest, Daria Rose. If you want to build a healthy lifestyle, listen to that episode. Today, we have another amazing guest on the show, Dr. Barry Nailbuff. Barry is a professor of economics and management at the Yale School of Management. He's a graduate of MIT, a Rhodes Scholar, and a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. He earned his doctorate at Oxford University. He's the author of several books, an expert in game theory, which he applies to business strategy, and he's the co-founder of Honesty, which has been named one of America's fastest growing companies. Barry, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you on here. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you and, and your story, tell us a little bit uh, about your background. Well, you've given me a nice intro. For many years, I couldn't seem to hold a job, so I taught at Harvard, Princeton, and now Yale. I've been here, I think, 27 years, so it's home. I teach in the School of Management. My subjects are negotiation, innovation, strategy, and game theory. And game theory is something that I'm fascinated with. I love strategy and, and games and it's something that I'm, I, I love reading about and thinking about. And actually, the original introduction I had to you and your writing was the old school book, Thinking Strategically, that you wrote with Avinash Dixit. And I really enjoyed that. So I'm curious, for, for listeners who may not know much about game theory, how would you describe sort of what game theory is and sort of some of the basics of game theory? Sure. It's the science of interaction that you can start with a simpler problem called decision theory. And that is you make a decision and you think about how that will interact with nature. So when an engineer builds a bridge, they think about tensile, steel of, uh, tensile strength of steel, the load factor on the bridge. But you don't have to think about how the bridge is going to respond to your actions. In contrast, when a strategist or a general takes a particular action, they have to think about how the other side will respond. What is their objective? What are they trying to accomplish? And only by taking into account the other side do you have a chance of being successful. So normally, people tend to be egocentric. That is, they're focused on their, themselves. Game theory is all about being allocentric, understanding the perspective of others. Very interesting. And where does that tie into kind of the idea of strategic behavior? Well, your strategy is both about predicting how other people respond to what you do, but also about shaping what it is that they're going to do. So if you think about the current healthcare debate, everybody would like to have a situation where people without pre-existing conditions can just get insurance whenever they want. But the challenge is that if they can buy insurance at any time, then they say, well, I'll just wait until I need insurance. And then I'll get it. And then the problem is only the sickest people will go and buy insurance. And that means that the cost of the insurance is going to be incredibly high and you get into what's sometimes called the death spiral. So the question is, how do you go and design a system which gives people incentives to sign up even when they're not necessary, they, they don't currently need it? And one tactic, if you'd like, was the stick, which is we're going to impose a tax penalty on you if you don't sign up. Uh, the other view could be a carrot, which is if you do sign up, we'll guarantee that you can continue to sign up and you can get continuous coverage and you can't be denied insurance going forward so long as you've been continuously covered. So I think that's a great real world example. And, and, and I'm curious for somebody who's listening and thinking, you know, game theory kind of sounds interesting, but why does it matter to my life or, or, or you know, why is it important? Why do you think it's, it's so critical to study and learn and understand game theory? 
I, I think pretty much everything we do in life is a game. It's not always called that way. And whether it be negotiating with your children, your spouse, or a raise at work, to understand how competitors will respond to you in the marketplace. And so since you're playing a game, you might as well play it well and understand really what's going on. So that's game theory is everything, in my view. It's everywhere. I thought, if you don't mind, actually, I'd play, uh, give you a, a little example that uh, we have some fun with. Yeah, that sounds great. Here is a question I've taken from the SAT, and I'd like your, it's a real question. Didn't make this up. I'd like you to tell us what the right answer is. So here are the choices. A is merits. B is disadvantages. C is rewards. D is jargon. And E is problems. All right. What's the question? Oh, no, I wasn't going to tell you the question. You see, I think by using game theory, you can actually figure out the right answer. And so let's imagine for a moment you're the person writing the test. What is your objective in this? Well, I think there are a couple of objectives. One, you don't want everybody to get the right answer. You don't want everybody to get the wrong answer. You want to be able to spread people out. Two, you want to make sure there's only one possible correct answer. Because if there's two right answers, you're going to have to go and regrade the exam, and it'll be a nightmare. And three, you never want somebody to get the right answer through the wrong logic. Okay? So now you understand the perspective of the person writing the test, and your choices are merits, disadvantages, rewards, jargon, and problems. All right. <laughs> going back to my SAT days, and I definitely should have had a, uh, another cup of coffee this morning, I'm looking at it, and the one to me that seems to jump out and be the least like the other four or five is jargon. It, it seems totally okay. disconnected to the others. That could be a good thing or a bad thing, because if it's just all by itself, then maybe it doesn't have any good decoys. But let's go and uh, figure out if we can use any Specific principles here. So merits, disadvantages, rewards, jargon, and problems. So I'll get you started a little bit. I would say that disadvantages and problems are pretty similar to each other. I agree. And so if one is right, it's kind of hard to imagine that the other would be wrong, that somebody could make a good case that the other word would also be an appropriate choice. And so my view is that two of them knock each other out. Let's go Are you with, with that. me on that. Yeah, let's go okay. with that. So now, so now you're left with merits, rewards, and jargon. And I mean, I think I I think there's definitely a distinction between well, there's obviously a distinction between merits and rewards, but they both have to me sort of this almost like positive connotation, whereas jargon just seems completely out on an island. Well, the island part is is dangerous because yeah. it could be no decoys. But the question is, how close are merits and rewards? And are they sufficiently close that somebody could make a valid argument that they would both work? And I think the answer is yes, actually. Uh, here's the first part of the question. It says each occupation has its own. And so you could see how both merits and rewards work for that. And it'd be pretty hard to distinguish the, between the two as you go on. So I, agree. I think those cancel each other out and you're left with jargon. The whole uh, question is actually each occupation has its own blank. Bankers, lawyers, computer professionals, for example, all use among themselves language which outsiders have difficulty following. And so you can see that jargon is the right answer. Ta-da! Okay, so now that you understand it, let's try one last one because you've got the principle. Accurate, popular, erroneous, widespread, and ineffectual. 
accurate, popular, erroneous, widespread, and ineffectual. All right, I'm writing these down. Accurate, popular, erroneous, widespread, and ineffectual. Correct. So let's see, popular and widespread, obviously kind of synonymous. So they uh, cancel each other out. Great. So now we're left with accurate, erroneous, and ineffectual. And accurate <laughs> and erroneous are kind of opposites. I think ineffectual. They are indeed, anty they are indeed antonyms. antonyms. That's correct. There we go. Getting our vocab words in. And I think that to me, erroneous and ineffectual could do have sort of similar connotations. So I'd probably, I don't know. I don't know. Let, let, like, let's pause for a moment. So accurate and erroneous, because they're opposites, actually are each great decoys for the other. That is, if a person reads a sentence backwards or misunderstands the meaning of the word and flips it, they would choose the other one by mistake, but nobody could claim that that was the correct answer. And so that suggests that accurate and erroneous are our most likely candidates here. But now we have to figure out, is there a good decoy for one of them? And it feels to me like ineffectual could be a decoy for erroneous. So the question is, if one was correct, could you really argue that the other one is not correct? I think it'd be challenging. I don't know. I mean, actually, you could be correct. You could be accurate, but also ineffectual. My example here is totally spot on, but I don't seem to be having the effect I want. And so I could be ineffectual in this example that I'm using, even if I'm not erroneous. Good point. So to me, the words actually are, there's open water between the meanings, as opposed to popular and widespread, where I think you can really make the case that there's not open water there. And so to me, ineffectual is a good decoy, but a, but a far enough decoy away that it really isn't both the right answer for erroneous. And in fact, the question was, there are some people who think only the poor and less educated people use slang, but this idea is erroneous. Anyway, my point in this is that it's actually possible by understanding how the test maker is trying to achieve the test maker's objective, you can figure out what's the right answer without, e without even reading the question. And of course, it's easier to do the problems reading the questions, but when you understand what the other side is trying to achieve, then you can accomplish what it is that you're trying to achieve. And that's the essence of game theory. That's a great demonstration. And, and it's really fascinating. Uh, I think it, it does an amazing job of kind of highlighting the point that just by understanding the other party and their kind of incentives and the way that they think, you can get a tremendous amount of information. The, uh, that's the idea. So I'm curious, what are some of the kind of core mental models or concepts that come out of game theory? One of the most important is the idea of equilibrium. And this goes back to John Nash, who won a Nobel Prize, had a movie done about him, A Beautiful Mind, starring Russell Crowe. And this is the question of how do I figure out what the other side is going to do when they're trying to figure out what it is that I'm going to do? And that's a challenge because essentially it can't be I'm responding to your actual actions. I have to respond to what I think you're going to be doing while you're thinking about what it is that I'm going to be doing. And here's a, another simple game that we can play. If the two of us pick the same number, we'll have a third party, your producer, each pay us that amount of money. And we have to pick a number between one and 10. If we don't pick the same number, we both get zero. Do you understand the game so far? Absolutely. All right. And, you know, I think uh, seven's a really uh, a lucky number. I, I like seven. I've heard... Uh, 
A lot of people, I understand, pick seven. And of course, you can pick any other number. So now you can see that there's a little bit of a paradox that you, you have to choose, which is if we both pick 10, we both get more money. But you might be saying, you know, although I'd like to pick 10, I'm a little worried that Barry's going to pick seven. And Barry might have to pick seven because he's afraid that Matt's going to pick seven because he thinks Barry's going to pick seven. And so we both end up worse off, or maybe we don't even coordinate. I end up picking seven and you pick 10, and we both get zero. And so one of the challenges that exists with Nash equilibrium is that there can be more than one and we may fail to find it. And this simple example actually goes a long way towards explaining why we have development issues in many third world countries. So we could all like to be in a situation where nobody pays bribes and nobody asks for bribes. We want to get rid of corruption. But if I believe that the official is going to want a bribe and I don't pay the bribe, then I won't get my new passport. I won't get my new driver's license. Then I will have to offer the bribe. The person will end up taking it. And we end up in a situation where the economy gets stuck in this corrupt equilibrium and doesn't advance as quickly as it might. And so, and you can't just change by having one person change. If I go from seven to 10 and the other person doesn't flip, it doesn't help either. And so you have to have this coordinated move and that's not so easy to do. That's a beautiful demonstration going from a a very simple game to an extremely concrete real world application. I'd be curious, could you, could you explain another one I know is, is very popular and kind of one of the cornerstones of game theory, the prisoner's dilemma for, for listeners who may not know what that is or maybe have heard it, but don't really understand it. I'd love to hear your kind of explanation of it. And maybe if you can think of one, uh, perhaps a real world instance of, of the prisoner's dilemma as well. Yeah. You know, I sometimes shy away from it, not because it isn't an interesting example, but because people end up thinking that's all there is to game theory is the idea of the prisoner's dilemma. And anyone who has seen a detective movie knows the drill. Two prisoners are interviewed in separate cells. And each one is told that if they confess and uh, they're the first to confess, they'll get a lighter sentence, maybe even get to turn state's evidence. And whereas if they both confess, there's a whole lot less value in those confessions. And so it doesn't work out so well for them. On the other hand, if neither confesses, they may actually get a light sentence or not even convicted. And so the problem is that if your colleague in crime doesn't confess, it turns out that the leniency you're shown is a good, really makes it worthwhile for you to confess. And similarly, if your rival, if your your, your fellow prisoner, sorry, your, your fellow criminal does confess, oh my God, you surely better because otherwise they're going to have the book thrown at you. And so whatever happens, it's in your interest to confess. And then when both sides confess, they don't do so well compared to the situation where neither confesses. And by the way, we use this not just for criminals, but also in antitrust enforcement, in corporate crime. So if it turns out there's been a conspiracy or antitrust and one company comes forward, they end up often getting amnesty as as a result. And then you know that if your rival, if your co-conspirator has this incentive to come forth and be a whistleblower, then you may decide you have to do that too, because you'll be left having the book thrown at you. So it's used in many contexts. And sometimes we think of this as a bad thing if you're a prisoner, but it's a good thing if you're the law enforcement. Yeah. So then I, the question, no, go ahead. Continue, please. Uh, so then the question is, how do you get out of it? And it could be that, say, well, okay, 
I'm going to meet up with you in jail. And if I do that and uh, you've confessed or other prisoners will say, wait a second, this guy was a, a rat and confessed. And they're going to punish you quite severely in, in prison for that. And that's uh, a good enough deterrent. So if we're actually coming across people again and again, and we have the ability to punish them in the future for what they did in that confession, and that's how the, the mob uh, often prevents people from turning. And so what's true and what's possible in a, in a single interaction, much more is possible when you run into the same people again and again. We can also think of multi-person prisoners' dilemmas, and you can think of global warming often in that circumstance, which is it's in my own interest to drive a car, to fly in an airplane, to heat my house, to use an air conditioner. And if other people are all doing that and the planet's going to go and uh, heat up, uh, well, I can't stop it, so I might as well enjoy life now. And if nobody else is going to do it, then it doesn't really hurt for me to go ahead and expend a little bit more carbon. So in some sense, whatever anybody else does, I want to be a little bit more of a carbon user. And then when everybody acts that way, we end up putting way too much carbon in the atmosphere and we suffer the, we globally suffer the consequences. And so each individual has an incentive to do something that's not good when it's done collectively. And is that kind of the same instance of the concept of the tragedy of the commons or is there a distinction there in this multi-person prisoner's dilemma? Nope. The tragedy of the commons is pretty much the multi-person dilemma. And it's one reason why people believe there's a role for government regulation, which is that we think of the invisible hand, Adam Smith sort of prices guide people to do the right things, but sometimes those prices aren't there because you're not correctly charged anything when you take this action, putting carbon in the, in the environment. And so if you don't have a price mechanism, there's no sense in which what the way people will play these games will necessarily be good for themselves or for society as a whole. Another concept from game theory that, that I've heard you talk about before is the idea of signaling. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of explain that? Sure. So Michael Spence won a Nobel Prize for his work on signaling. And it's a little embarrassing to me because part of the theory of signaling is that you go to get a degree, not for the stuff that we teach you, although we'll teach you about signaling theory, but for what it says to the rest of the world. And uh, let me give you an example with my MBA students. Imagine that you are a smart woman and you want to convince your employer that you are really going to be there and make a commitment to this company. Uh, the employer is uh, sexist and uh, perhaps even illegally is thinking about discriminating against women because they're worried they're going to leave, have kids and start a family. And therefore, this person doesn't want to make the investment in the employee that they would make if they knew this person would be staying on. Now, the employee says to the firm, okay, well, look, I'm really, I'm committed. I'm the kind of person who will stay here and through thick and thin. The problem is anyone can say that. It doesn't mean anything. So how do you take an action which conveys you're the type of person who really means that as opposed to just saying it? And one way of doing that is going and getting an MBA. You go and you spend $120,000 in tuition. You spend two years of your life listening to professors like me, and you're able to endure that. Why would you have done that and then leave the labor force right away? 
And so you can say, look, I took these actions that only make sense if, in fact, I am planning to be here for the next 20 years, next 15 years. And so there are a lot of people who will say that they are committed to this company, to being a professional. But you can look at the actions that I've taken and show that I'm not that average person. I'm really the one who is going to go and make this happen. A nice example, I think, from uh, Steve uh, Levitt, Freakonomics, is uh, a dentist who's getting on in, the ye- on in the years and wants to convince patients that he or she is not about to retire, uh, goes and buys new furniture for the office. Like, well, look, if I was going to retire in the next six months, you know, I would have just let that naga hide kind of hang out there a little bit longer. But it didn't make sense for me to redecorate the office, buy new furniture, new equipment if I was about to hang up my shingle. And so anybody can say they're going to be staying on. But the fact that I have made this investment uh, suggests I'm really going to be around for a little bit longer. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. One of the other concepts that, that you've talked about in the past is, is the idea of using principled arguments in negotiation and kind of the concept of dividing up the pie. I'd love to explore that idea briefly. Sure. 
well, I'll put a little plug in. Uh, I've created a free online negotiation course at Coursera, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A.org. And you can learn all of it uh, there. But here's the preview. A lot of people think that negotiation is about who can yell louder and shake my hand, do this deal, five, four, three, two, one, shake my hand now, say yes. Sort of how uh, Dwight uh, negotiates in the office. And that's not a, a principled approach. And so I want to say, what type of arguments can you make that might persuade other people about what is appropriate, what is fair? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what is the pie? Why are we having a particular negotiation? And so I can use a, a simple example if you'd like. We have Abe and B, two parties who have nine to divide up uh, in the sense that if they can reach an agreement, there's a pie of size nine that they can share. Now, in order to figure out what will happen, I also have to say what they should do, what, what they will do if they can't reach an agreement. And so let's say A can get one on his own and B can get two on her own. So if they reach an agreement, A and B together can get nine. But if not, A can walk away with one and B can walk away with two. And so now the question is, how do we divide up the nine? And what most people say is that B is in some sense twice as strong as A. And so B should get six and A should get three. That is, B can get twice as much if they don't reach an agreement. So perhaps B should get twice as much if they do. And my view is we fundamentally misunderstand power and proportionality. And the right way of thinking about this is that A and B without an agreement can collectively get three. A gets one, B gets two. So collectively they get three. If they reach an agreement, they can get nine. And so there's an extra six they can get by reaching an agreement. Who is more important for that agreement, A or B? And my answer to that is they're equally important. If A walks away, that six disappears. And if B walks away, that six disappears. What that means is that A and B are equally important to that six. So you should divide it three and three. So A will get four and B will get five. And that is, if you like the principle, which is, Figure out what the pie is. Figure out what the two of you are able to create by working together rather than not reaching agreement and split those gains. I love that example. And I think it's, it's a great way to, to look at it because, you know, if you think about sort of a 50-50 split off the bat, it's not quite equitable. And if you think about a sort of a two-thirds, one-third split, it's not quite equitable. But really looking at all the different outcomes and what the parties can achieve on their own versus what they can create together, I think you achieve the most sort of fair, and I guess as you would say, principled split of the proceeds. The argument doesn't depend on which side you're taking. And that I think that that aspect of I could make that argument for either side is a critical component of what it means to be fair and reasonable. I think that's a great kind of segue to dig into honesty, which we haven't talked about yet. You know, obviously you're, you're an expert in game theory, but on top of that, you and one of your students actually founded one of the fastest growing companies in America, a beverage company that has been incredibly successful. I'd love to just kind of hear this. We just sold our billionth bottle. Congratulations. Have these McDonald's signs up there. Billions and billions <laughs> serve. That's amazing. That's really cool. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating. I'd love to hear the story of how a professor and a student 
start a beverage company and go up and compete against the likes of Coke and Nestle and other giants in that space? Yeah, well, you'd think it'd be a recipe for disaster, since that neither of us had much experience in terms of starting a company, starting a beverage company, but we had some ideas. And in fact, we had, uh, if you'd like, on our side, passion, we had some luck, and we had economic theory. And uh, I'll emphasize the economic theory because that's my job. One of the key lessons we say in economics is a declining marginal utility. So if you'd like, the first scoop of ice cream is really good. The second is okay. And by the time you're in the 10th scoop, it's like, ah, I'm kind of full now. I'm not so interested in uh, having a little more ice cream. And same thing in terms of whether it be shirts or shoes. Well, maybe not shoes. But for most things, as you have more and more of them, the incremental value of the next one is less and less interesting. And I think that's true for sugar. And so you add a little bit of sugar to a beverage. It takes away the bitterness. The next adds some flavor. And each incremental one is less and less good, but it carries the same number of calories. And so it didn't make any sense to us that all the beverages out there were either zero calories and often very sweet with diet or 140 calories and basically turned into liquid candy. Why wasn't there a normal beverage with one or two teaspoons of sugar? And we figured that we weren't alone in wanting to have something like that. And so with uh, that inspiration and insight, we thought we could just make a tea that tasted like tea and kind of use an old-fashioned recipe, kind of fire, water, and leaves, not much else. And that was the start of Honest Tea. I think it's it's really interesting, and and you talked about the the concept of declining marginal utility. I don't know if you still do it or not, but you used to actually put a a curve on the bottles, yeah. right? That demonstrated kind of the trade off between calories and flavor in in terms of sugar content. Exactly. So I think that label may now be a historical item, although only as a, only pretty recently it was on the Green Dragon tea, and this again is a, a case where. Only real wonks could uh, get the inside line. But in calculus, we learned that the derivative of a function is ma- the function is maximized where its derivative is zero. And what that means in normal person speak is that when you're doing something and you're right at the optimum, when you're doing it as best as possible, if you make a small change, you add a little bit more, a little bit less, it has almost no impact on the result. And so in particular, imagine that you came up with a recipe which maximized the flavor based on how much sugar was in there. And that won the blind taste test. And now we cut back the sugar 10%. Well, essentially, since the taste was optimized, cutting back the sugar by 10% will have almost no impact in terms of what people think for the flavor. But it will cut back the calories by 10%. That is a, a direct linear result. And so what's interesting is the product which wins the blind taste test is not actually the best product in the market. Another way about of thinking about this is a blind taste test, if you'd like, your eyes are closed and your mouth is open. Now, if I want to flip that, we'd have a test where your eyes are open and your mouth is closed. And what is that? That's a test where you go and read the label. And the ideal label, if you like, has zero calories in it and nothing artificial. The problem is that doesn't always taste so great. And so 
For the same reason that I wouldn't want the product to win the eyes open, mouth closed test, I don't want the product to win the eyes closed, mouth open test. What I think the right test is, is something in between the two where you read the label and you taste the product. And that's going to lead you to something which is less sweet than, than wins the blind taste test and more sweet than something that wins the eyes open, mouth shut test. And that's this, and so to speak, that's the sweet spot that Honest Tea lives in. Another theory you've talked about that helped inform the startup of Honesty was the idea of the babysitter theorem. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the babysitter theorem. The basic idea here is that nobody goes and hires a babysitter to eat at McDonald's, right? It sort of costs you 50 bucks for the babysitter, 10 bucks for McDonald's. Now you're sitting there saying, wait a second, I just spent $60 to go to McDonald's? That makes no sense at all. And so what is the larger – so by you might uh, spend $50 to go out and get a fancy dinner at a white tablecloth uh, restaurant. And so the idea is if you have to spend a lot of money to get out the door, you're going to go and do something of high quality, not low quality. And to apply that result to honest tea, in our case, the babysitter is the bottle, the label, the cap. If we were to fill up a bottle just with air, but put on the cap and the label, it could cost us 60 cents to get out the door. And so if you're going to spend that much money on packaging, you might as well spend a little bit more on ingredients. And the other guys out there were spending a penny or so on tea, a couple more cents on high fructose corn syrup. And we said, you know, if we spend a nickel on tea, people actually can tell the difference. And it's going to raise the price maybe from a dollar to a dollar ten. But if you're already spending a dollar, you might as well spend a buck ten and get something that's truly amazing in terms of quality. And the babysitter theorem helped us get there. So how did you take this, you know, being kind of a professor and a student, how did you take this idea and go from concept to purchase order and then from a purchase order to product on shelves? Uh, that's a long uh, story, which we tell in our book uh, called Mission in a Bottle. So that's another plug, if, I, if I'm allowed. And that's where we had a, a huge amount of passion. Seth is brilliant. He's tireless. He is inspiring. We started out using the lean startup approach, which in this case meant making tea in our kitchen, taking an old Snapple bottle, washing off the label, using rubber cement to glue on uh, a hand-printed label filling up the bottle with the uh, tea that we had made, putting the cap on back ourselves, and bring it to a buyer at Whole Foods, who fortunately liked the way the product tasted, and he ordered a truckload. And then we had a couple of months to figure out how to make it. But if we couldn't have sold it to the buyer at Whole Foods, uh, that was our complete target customer, then we would have realized that we hadn't truly understood the market that we thought we had understood. For listeners out there, we will definitely include in the show notes, Mission in a Bottle, we'll include the negotiating course on Coursera and links to everything else we've talked about. So that stuff will all be on the website. Everybody can make sure to check that out. Well, I'll give you, I'll take you back to game theory for one last bit. Just uh, imagine, and we'll stick in the beverage world. Imagine for a moment, you get to be the CEO of, I don't know, PepsiCo. And you have the opportunity to get Coca-Cola's secret formula. And it's not an ethical issue. It's not a legal issue. What would you do with that if you had it? That's a good question. You know, I mean, do you do you produce it or not? I don't know. Yeah, that that is the question. <laughs> uh, I'll give you one shot and then I'll flip the cards. 
All right, fair enough. I would say, you know, this this almost happened, right, with the with the fiasco with New Coke back in the 90s. Sure. And, and it was a disaster for Coke, and they ended up completely reversing course. But, I mean, I think you'd probably... I think it makes sense to produce it in some way or another, whether it's under the same label or not, if nothing else, just to try to kind of knock them down a peg. Okay, so let's say that you did that. And now there's sort of another thing out there that tastes just like Coca-Cola, separate from whether or not the taste of Coke is really what matters the most or is it really its association with being America and the brand. But if that happened, that's likely to bring the price of Coca-Cola down because they're now going to have to compete more aggressively against this perfect substitute this uh, generic version of Coke that's really more than generic. It's uh, a perfect replica. And when the price of Coca-Cola comes down, what is that going to do to the folks at Pepsi? Lower their prices. It's going to probably force them to respond with lower prices. And so the last thing you want to do is make the world for Coca-Cola more competitive because that is going to come back and bite you. And so by playing out the moves and counter moves, you can see that actually the best thing to do, along with probably the ethical and legal thing, is to throw away that recipe and never look at it. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, in many ways, it's kind of the same concept behind cartels like OPEC that would prefer to you know, keep prices at a certain level in order to maintain all their margins. Sure. Well, they're actually doing what would be illegal in the United States in terms of restricting output. But here, there's a question of, do I want to go and make a perfect copy of what my rival is making in the market? I may not even be able to do it, but if I could, the answer is I probably don't because that forces my rival to be in a more competitive situation. And if my rival's prices come down, then mine will probably come down too. And so that's not colluding by not doing this. There's no requirement that I go and force my rival into a greater competitive environment. In fact, I generally want to differentiate my products uh, from a rival rather than copy them. But people's first instinct is often, oh, oh, I got it. I can really screw the rival. I can beat them up. I can trash them. Let me go and do it. And with a little bit more of a game theory insight, you realize that's unlikely to actually help you in the long run. That's a great lesson. And and again, shows Game theory is not something that just exists kind of in textbooks, but something that's incredibly applicable to all kinds of different fields you know, that, uh, of our lives. I'm curious, what would be a piece of advice you'd have for somebody who's listening who might be kind of an aspiring entrepreneur that, that wants to follow in one way or another kind of the footsteps of you and Seth in, in what you've done with honesty? Well, find something that truly makes a difference. In economics, we sometimes say that if you're just 10% better, 1% better, the whole world will come to you. But it turns out that's not true. You have to be radically different and better in order for folks to care and to pay attention. Uh, So I think that's a a starting point. That also is a a reason to have uh, passion. I think there are two aspects you need to have a successful business. One is you have to have the solution to a great problem. Uh, And that's what most people focus on. But you also have to figure out why you're going to continue to succeed even after the world knows about what you've done. That is, why won't others copy you? Or having copied you, why is it that you'll still succeed after they've copied you? And that's an often harder challenge. And the problem is that most good ideas are good ideas for somebody else. They're not good ideas for you. And so work on that as well. 
when you're trying to come up with your great entrepreneurial idea. So what prevented Honest Tea from being copied? Let me take a step back. Before doing Honest Tea, I thought about mixing orange juice and club soda. I do that myself. I think it's a great drink. It's an, If you'd like, it's an organic, all-natural soda. That's half the calories of orange juice. You could sell it, and it would have half the cost of making orange juice, some for the same price. So better margins. Uh, it's all good. The problem is that if we had made that, I think it would be test marketing for Tropicana. Because they could come in perfectly well copy what it is that we'd done, and I would be a bitter professor saying that others had stolen my idea. And so for 10 years, I didn't do anything on this because I was afraid that in the end it would be copied, and even though it would succeed, we wouldn't own anything in the long run. The nice thing about tea is that the way in which we were making it, literally boiling water and putting in tea leaves, was not something that the big players whether in the time be Nestle or Snapple or Arizona we're doing, they're using syrup and concentrates and powders. And so our more artisanal uh, way of doing things was a little hard for them to copy in uh, what they were up to. It was also the case that they would suffer some cognitive dissonance, which is if we're saying what they're making is liquid candy, then it's hard for them to also go and make a product which isn't so sweet because their customers are expecting stuff that's really sweet. And so they'd have to say to their customers, look, if you like our regular product, now yeah, you're probably not going to like this. And so don't drink this. And that's not so easy for them to say. That doesn't mean in the end that folks won't copy you, but it means it'll slow them down and allow us to have more of a foothold and build up a brand, which we're able to do. So what is one kind of simple, actionable piece of homework that you would give to somebody listening that wants to take a first step towards implementing or, or learning more about what we've talked about today? Other than buying Mission in a Bottle, I'd say go and make your prototype. And the best market research, I think, is what anybody will pay for it. I'll give you one quick example. Some students of mine wanted to make and sell organic cotton shirts. And so how could you figure out if there's a market for that? Well, I think you could show them pictures, you could tell them the story. Uh, what you could also do is go to a custom tailor and have the person make you an organic cotton shirt. And then you could show the person, they could look at it, they could hold it, they could touch it, and they could say, okay, yeah, I'd buy that. I'd say, great, well, write me a check. And then you know that it's a, a real piece of demand, not just a hypothetical piece of demand. And so I may not have to have thousands of pieces of inventory, but having one piece of inventory makes the project look so much more real and will allow you to truly gauge demand in a much better way. A great piece of advice and, and something that's so critical. If someone's, you know, it's very easy for people to say, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea, but unless they're willing to put hard dollars on the line and actually support it, you know, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Where can people find you and, and Mission in a Bottle and, and all of your other books online? Well, missioninabottle.net, I will tell you a little preview there. BarryNailbuff.com has links to everything. The Coursera course has the free online negotiation. So that gets you uh, pretty well started, I'd say. And of course, Amazon pretty much has everything. 
Well, we'll make sure to have all of those included in the show notes. Uh, Barry, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation. I enjoyed having the the tables turned and testing my SAT test-taking abilities and my game theory knowledge. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all your wisdom. Well, thanks for being a good sport and for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes, because that helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all of this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we just talked about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get them at scienceofsuccess.co. Just hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 